This is IFS Talks, an audio series to deepen connection with the internal family systems model through conversations with lead trainers, authors, practitioners, and users. Today on IFS Talks, we are interviewing and speaking with Mary Kruger. Mary Kruger, MS, LMFT, is an AAMFT supervisor and a lead IFS trainer. She is the founder of Rimmon Pond Counseling, an IFS-based private practice located in New Haven, Connecticut, specializing in addictions, eating disorders, and trauma for over 25 years. Mary incorporates IFS with her own penchant for the experience and has developed a variety of creative ways to work with parts and access self-energy in individual, relational, and group contexts. She enjoys sharing her experience in teaching and consulting on a national level. Mary is noted for her humor, creativity, passion, and love of dancing and people. She also offers private therapy consultations and workshops. Hi, Mary. Thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you, Mary, for having us. How is it for you, Mary, to hear this bio? What parts come up? Uh, Well, a part of me feels a little self-conscious. Part of me says, oh, I'm bragging about myself a little bit, and I don't know if I like that. (laughs) Um, but another part of me was happy to hear you say that about me because I've worked hard for a long time. Yeah. Would you be willing to share with us uh, about how you got into the the mental health field to begin with? Oh, certainly. Um, uh, my fa- I come from a, um, my parents were divorced um, when I was five and um, I'm Italian and Irish and I believe a little Hungarian, don't know much about that part of me. And um, so my father had a drinking problem. And so did his father, um, which is part of my interest in the legacy of addiction. And my mother um, was a great enabler, you know, a hardworking woman. Um, So uh, we we lived with my grandparents, my Italian grandparents, for a number of years. And then my mother remarried um, my stepfather, who was a violent alcoholic. And so through my own experience with my own trauma and um, my journey um, with myself, I um, finally, in my 20s, got um, connected with a therapist that was decent. Um, You know, when I was growing up, we didn't really do therapy, and that wasn't really part of my culture. So uh, it was a new thing to me, uh, getting into therapy. So the first time I went to therapy, I was not um, really on board with it. I felt self-conscious and embarrassed, so I didn't go back. But I finally, in my 20s, connected with someone who was... um, an addiction person, actually, and uh, after a couple of years, he got me uh, to go to a 12-step meeting, ACOA, Al-Anon, which really started to change my life. Other than my spiritual um, practice that I was brought up with, uh, it was really the first time that I really felt what we call an IFS self-energy, like from a group, and that was the beginning of my journey, and um, I was working at the time for a fortune um, 100 company and decided to go back and get my master's in marriage and family therapy. Um, My undergrad had been social sciences, by the way, so I've always been interested in sociology and history and psychology. So it was a really good fit. In the Fortune 100 company, the job I was in at the time was um, 
uh, sales, but um, we were trained uh, really in psychological techniques. And mm-hmm. I was working with, um, you know, government education and medical accounts. So it was really a amazing journey. There is a lot of, of social psychology on the on the sales. Yeah, there is. We we learn like basic joining techniques, just uh, like we teach yeah. in family therapy um, yeah. in the training. So. Um, I don't want to go on too much longer, but I, I, I was uh, training interns by the time I uh, became a family therapist, and Ralph Cohen, Dr. Cohen, invited me to take a training um, with Dick Schwartz. So I was like, oh, wow, yeah, he does that supervision thing, and I've read about him and all that. That sounds cool, and that's how I got introduced to IFS. So it really brought together everything that I was loving and believing around psychology and sociology and healing. Yeah. So you took your first training in IFS directly with Dick Schwartz, right? Yes, we spent about five years working with him. Yeah. This is IFS Talks, an audio series to deepen connection with the internal family systems model through conversations with lead trainers, authors, practitioners, and users. How was it uh, after, for you? Uh, there was a before and then after IFS, IFS was for you at the time a stepping stone somehow? Yeah, that's a great question. The thing that really shifted for me is um, that um, I was really interested in um, how can we make those deeper internal changes. So, um, you know, lots of the therapies I was trained in, we did really well with external changes and such, but I was finding that Clients and even myself in my own work were like really stuck around old, old, um, deeper things inside of us. John Bradshaw called it the shame that binds us, but I didn't really know how we could undo that. And for me, IFS brought that that opportunity to be able to do that through the unburdening process, which I loved. And um, so that really hooked me. And then I also loved the idea of interweaving a spiritual aspects into our healing and IFS is a also a psycho-spiritual therapy so it really brought that together for me and changed things. And changed things. Did, did you have ever done some IFS um, work yourself personally? Yes actually. Mm-hmm. So you took both at the same time the trainings and also experiencing it uh, doing some personal work? Yeah, about a year uh, into the training, I, I realized that I wasn't going to really learn how to do unburdening that well unless I had the experience. So um, I started my own personal IFS journey in therapy then and, and continue through therapy and doing retreats and various things over the years to work on my own parts. I think that's the power of being a good IFS therapist is working on our own parts. Yeah. And then you became uh, practicing IFS yourself in your, in your clinical work. Yes, I, I, I began to use it almost immediately when I started the training, you know, at least speaking about parts. So I like it because it's systemic therapy and I'm a systems thinker. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes, so it fits so well. It's, easy to. Yeah. So what kind of challenges and shifts did that brought into your clinical work? You did some clinical work before and after IFS, right? Yeah, I'm um, trained as a family therapist. Our uh, work is more directive. So what that means is we work fast and specifically with specific goals and uh, in specific periods of time. So one of the things I learned to do is to listen more, to slow down my process. Um, Especially with my New York background, it was easy for me to, you know, 
get rapid speaking and, and not listen and be agenda driven. So I learned to be less agenda driven and um, to really listen and more to my client and, and be more curious about their process rather than what I needed to make happen in the session. That is a huge, huge plus in, in our toolbox as therapists, right? At the time, did you combine IFS with other modalities? You came from the family systems uh, tradition, right? Um, as a family therapist, can you recognize which modalities or principles still guide much of your clinical work? Once IFS is also such a beautiful integrated model. Yes, I, I, I even presented as an integrative model. I essentially didn't really have to let go of uh, my training because. Um, You know, I loved some of the work of Bowen, and uh, even though some of it is sexist, um, but I was interested in the women's project version of that. And, um, you know, they recognized uh, polarization in, in that um, modality. And also I loved intergenerational work, and, you know, my interest in legacy burden ties into mm -hmm. that. Um, We find so much in our clinical work, right? That's right. Yeah. And um, I loved, you know, structural strategic therapy. Uh, Dick was a structural therapist. So many of the things that we teach in IFS are structural, I'm going to say techniques, some of the basic ways. Um, and kind of a milching, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I use, I take, I've integrated some solution-focused um, ideas into my work too because it's very optimistic. So, uh, and Peggy Papp doing experiential work and Virginia Satir. So I do like to do um, sculptings and various experiential things. So I found it very integrative. Um, just basically, I talk about it enhancing my work rather than needing to leave things behind. Yeah. What was the um, clinical population like that you were working with when you first came back from that IFS training? Were you working with families or were you working with, with addictions? Well, I um, always worked with individuals and also couples and families and group. I do a lot of group work too. So the population was um, various um, uh, populations, you know, from different um, socioeconomic and cultural classes. And people adapted to it. People love the work. I mean, there's some people that have parts that don't like to go inside, but that's just how that works. But um, people really resonate with doing the work. Yeah. Do you have a particular strategy for working with people who have parts that, that don't like to go inside? Uh, it's called direct access. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good strategy. Yeah, they thought that one up. <laughs> good workaround, yeah. Do you enjoy to go on direct access? Oh, I, I do love it. Um, you know, anyone who's working with addictions and eating disorders is going to be doing a lot of direct access at, in, initially. So, um, and also people that are extremely traumatized. So I do, I do love it. And eventually people make shifts. Although I've had people that have never made a shift yet um, to, to insight work, yet they've made shifts in their own um, system. You know? mm -hmm. yeah. Mary, I, I'm a psychologist too, and I was training in this Balder model of practitioner, researcher, always with many, many concerns on outcomes, you know? And um, do you worry also about outcomes uh, or saying it another way? How do you get a sense of the effectiveness of your clinical work? Well, I'm not a researcher, so I haven't actually done outcome studies, but um, I guess I would go on my own personal experience. 
noticing that I've had greater improvements with clients using IFS than prior to using. Um, I just, you know, I remember one specific story, if it's okay that I share it. Please. Um, there was a, a woman when I was doing a group for overeaters, and one day people were saying, well, you know, Mary's taught us all these things, but we're not like doing anything about our eating and our weight. We haven't really changed anything. So, um, so one of the women said, well, you know, um, for me, what's really happening is that, um, and she was from a very um, well-off family. She and her husband had many um, degrees. They had lovely children. They had many, you know, financial fortunes, good education. But this person said, you know, there's something inside of me that still feels like that little girl that lived in Northern Ireland that's dressed in rags and was burned out of her home. And, and I just can't shake that feeling. And, um, you know, there must, there's some connection to why I eat with that. And that really stuck with me. Um, so when I learned about IFS, I was like, oh, wow, now we can heal that. You know, there's a way to do that. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. And so those are the folks that have made shifts that, you know, before were feeling rather stuck. Yeah. Mary, somehow you chose a, a group that is, can be really very difficult to work with. I mean, people that are using substances, addictions, all kinds of addictions. Of course, there are other ones than others. But um, how is it for you to, do you, do you prefer to, to work with um, some kind of substances or, or or do you accept people that are in the beginning of the process that are still using substances? Um, um, how do you differentiate between working with addictions versus working with eating disorders? Can you say something about why did you pick this group? I believe we can understand. You have a, your own personal history of having people suffering from these um, experiences. But it's still a very difficult population and groups to work with, I believe, I'm talking for my parts, that find it difficult to work with people using substances mainly? Well, I like to say I was teethed on a beer bottle, and I, I can really relate to people, um, you know, have eating disorders or addictions. I, I should have mentioned I had my own eating disorder when I was younger, so, um, and didn't have the healing that I needed. You know, I had to mm -hmm. kind of get myself out of it. So um, I, I feel very connected to those parts. And one of the things that I love is, is and I will work with people at any stage of their recovery, even if they're still mm -hmm. using. Um, I was trained in intervention. I, I did work in a rehab for a while. And so I've adapted, um, I call it like mini intervention that I do in session with people, um, IFS informed. It's kind of my own little thing I do. So I don't worry if someone comes in and they've been using, I know that there's a part of them that wants something better. So I start to connect with those parts. And um, if they need to go to a treatment facility, you know, after we've established trust, then they'd be willing to go. Um, but I find that people that have addictions and eating disorders actually resonate with parts work. It's one of the things they learn in the recovery community is that they are not their, quote, addiction or their eating disorder. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So they already have a sense of a part of them that's not really who they essentially are. So I actually find it easier to work with them than some other clients. Um, sometimes the person that doesn't use, uh, use anything is harder for me to work with. How come? Because they tend to focus on the people that are um, 
causing them issues in their family rather than um, the parts of them that are, are, have gotten hooked into the process of addictions. Yeah. So they somehow blend with the manager? That's what you have saying? Yes, they get really manager-driven, very blended with that. And it's really hard to uh, shift that um, to the idea that maybe I have a part that's gotten hooked into the system because there's so much shame underneath about that and uh, shame and not, wa not wanting to be connected to that um, person that's done these awful things. So um, sometimes it's more difficult to work with those, those people. Um, but essentially, I, I, would, I get kind of bored if there's nothing exciting going on in the room. <laughs> well, get the, get the couple. So give me you know, a heroin addict. <laughs> oh, well, the couples, the addictive couples are the most interesting. <laughs> <laughs> they are. <laughs> they are. You have to be um, <laughs> on your toes, and, and it's very challenging not to get hooked into um, either side, you know, take a side. Yeah. Yeah. I found myself very, very challenging couples in many ways. So uh -huh. I totally understand your parts. I'm really appreciating your fearlessness and courage um, in approaching the work that you do. It's really, really beautiful to see that aspect it of is. yourself energy coming through. Um, and I, I'm I'm curious about how um, how you got into the the topic you lectured on at the at the conference. I'm definitely kind of chomping at the bit to find out more about your work with legacy burdens and addiction. Well, I was um, you know I teach a level two on on addictions and eating disorders. So part of the level two, um, I do a bit of uh, uh, part of the program is to do some work on family towards the end of the week. And uh, I started introducing, you know, legacy burden into that. And I've gotten really um, intrigued by how deep that goes. Um, there's, there's been a lot of focus in the States here on, um, on, you know, bias and discrimination and things. And I'm beginning, I've gotten much more interested in how historical um, trauma, you know, passed down from generation to generation can um, create addictive cycles in families. So, um, you know, I'm part Irish and I mentioned um, that I was and I did a little research actually when I was a family therapist and came up with this little anecdote about um, Irish folks because they had been occupied for 800 years, uh, had to develop secret way to maintain their culture. So being a secret keeper was really important, not, not letting things out, uh, keeping things close to your sleeve and a survival technique. But as it gets passed down from generation to generation, and that's no longer necessary. It also creates, you know, holding of feelings and all kinds of stuff, which leads people to have to find a way to deal with their pain. And one of those is through addictions. Um, so, so I was really fascinated by that. But there's many more legacy burdens that people carry from different cultures, different experiences. Mm -hmm. So I'm really fascinated by that. And also around the idea that, you know, we even talk about it in the 12 steps that, you know, 20% of it is the using behavior and 80 percent is the attitudes and beliefs. So that's always fascinated me too. How did those beliefs and attitudes get passed down from generation to generation, especially when people talk about how it skipped a generation, like my parents weren't alcoholics and why am I? Right. What's happened to me? Why am I different? I must be an oddball or something. So when you get into legacy burden, I think it's freeing to realize that you're part of a bigger system and that you're not a flawed human being. Mm. Yeah. And I think that's really powerful and that your ancestors wanted to uh, help you to be able to be here. And that's why they came up with these strategies to survive. But we're, there, we're not needing them anymore. So let's connect with those ancestors. 
and let's let's let go of it with them together and let's thank them for allowing us to survive and be here yeah yeah it's so powerful mm-hmm. and scientific research is now supporting this with the whole work on epigenetics so i'm just fascinated by that idea because as a family therapist you know my, in the beginning of my work i loved intergenerational things you know being from italian irish background we're big on families so we're always telling stories and talking about our grandparents and our great-grandparents so really resonates with me you know it's powerful i feel like one of my own personal uh maybe most transformative ifs sessions was finding a legacy burden of poverty passed down from my irish grandmother you know considering how how that energy had affected my life was was phenomenal it was also amazing to unburden it for my ancestors That's and right. future generations yes <laughs> mary if i may i might be suggesting a complex question but how does working with addictions or eating disorders should change the way we approach the ifs model once it's such a specific group, such specific difficulties, the others that change or not change the way we use IFS? Well, I, I think one of the, um, I think it's a little bit more um, complex work that, um, well, first I mentioned we often have to start with direct access. Um, <clears throat> um, what is scaring for many people? It is scary. And also people often enter treatment with a manager that brought them in saying, I want to get better. So often the therapist ends up colluding with that part and they create a polarization with the addiction part because that, that part's not agreed to treatment. So there needs to be an awareness that there's this other part in the room that's not being spoken for when that, that client appears to be so motivated and they're coming in. Um, the other piece is that, you know, culturally we uh, consider, um, you know, addictions or eating disorders like demons or monsters or something to be gotten rid of in an IFS, we're, we're befriending those parts. So that's a shift. And, um, and in, in that way of working, um, we end up spending a little more time with the protectors than we normally would doing, okay. doing traditional mm-hmm. IFS. So uh, unburdening is, is an important piece, but we may not be able to get to unburdening until we can get some of those protectors to relax and it can take more time, including needing to go to rehab or, or doing some kind of 12-step work or, or something to shift our, um, our usage to get there. The other piece that's very important is as we're working with the unburdening process with exiles, it's important to check back with those protectors to see if there's been an escalation in in um, behaviors, because if there has, then we have to go back and do a little bit more work with those parts, and then go back to uh, working with the exile. So it's it's a bit more intensive, and uh, we need to be careful around getting mm-hmm. uh, an alliance or occlusion with one of the parts that seem nicer, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. You are giving us um, a short view of what will be your training in in Lisbon in 20... Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> it is. Is that a level two on addictions? That... Yeah, we have, oh, great. we have one in Lisbon in November of next year, 2020. We have one in Austin in um, June and one in Nashville in January. So I'll be all over the globe. Right, you see. Teaching level yeah. two, yeah. Uh-huh. Are you also teaching level ones or, or are you really more specialized? 
Oh, I'm doing a number of level ones as well. Yeah, we have, uh, yeah, some in New Jersey, um, uh, New York, California, Maryland. Yeah. And so, Mary, you are a lead trainer for CSL for how long? Oh, mm, a lead. Uh, it's, it's hard for me to say. I was an AT for quite a long time. I'd say I was an AT starting in 2005. Um, and... I think around 2011, I became a lead trainer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what do you enjoy more in these uh, IFS trainings? The demos, the large group sharing, meditations, lecturing? Is there something that you enjoy more or how is it for you? I love doing all the experientials whether it's a demo or uh, a sculpting, I love doing that. Um, sometimes we do drawing and movement. I love doing that piece a lot, yeah. Um, I like to do meditations too. I like to do readings during the meditations and such, yeah. So I like most all of it, actually. Yeah, they are really, really very, very, very rich yeah. and interesting. Uh, is there anything that you'd like to see the trainings develop or change, any evolutions you'd like to see in the trainings? even they are already so good, structured? Ah, that's a very good question. Well, I, I actually personally um, wish that th we, don't, we don't move into using so much PowerPoint. <laughs> okay, the lecturing. Uh -huh. I've, been, I've been noticing th that there's more and more PowerPoint. I, I like to see a little of it, you know, maybe a slide yeah. here and there it can be helpful, but I would hope that... Um, we don't can we don't move into that whole thing where we're relying on PowerPoint and lecturing off of that. So mm -hmm. I guess that's I guess it's kind of a change in that I hope we don't change to that um, because I see some of that happening now and it concerns me because I think the experiential nature of our our teaching is very powerful. Yeah. My part jumped with yours very happy because I get triggered also with the lectures. I really get mad when too many lectures are happening, but it happens sometimes. Yeah. This is IFS Talks, an audio series to deepen connection with the internal family systems model through conversations with lead trainers, authors, practitioners, and users. How do you feel about the, um, the retreat style, the, the more um, compact trainings versus uh, they used to be uh, more kind of strung out over a year? Um, how, is, how is that? for your teacher teaching parts? I actually like both. Um, it's hard for me to decide. They each have their own special flavor. Like the retreat style creates a little bit of a community if they're able to stay together or stay nearby. And um, it allows for people who normally wouldn't be able to have a training either due to location or schedule to be able to take an IFS training. Yeah, uh, but I also love the six weekend model because it's spread out over a long period of time and people are often be able, uh, are able to create a ongoing community out of those, those trainings. So I love that aspect of it. Yeah. And there's a little more space in between to practice the model and then come back and learn another piece. So. Right. Yeah. You can see that someone's personal evolution over yeah. the course of a year. How does it feel sending, sending these, um, level one uh, certified IFS therapists out into the world. What, what is that? What is that feeling like for you? Um, magnificent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Magnificent. Good work. I love it. Yes. I love I love seeing fabulous people out there doing good work. Uh-huh. I do. And and um it makes my heart sing. Yeah. Yeah. Mary, you have achieved so much in, in your journey with a, as a family therapist and as an IFS practitioner and trainer. Um, is there something else you'd like to do or achieve uh, besides keeping doing all that you have been doing? You also supervise or have case discussions, right? Supervision, I do consultation and supervision, yes. Students and such. Um, Although I'm not doing students anymore. The one last thing um, I'd like to do is, um, not last thing, I hope it's not my last thing. I'd like to write. <laughs> oh, yes. I'd like to write about some of the things I've, I've done. You'd like creating. to write more. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've done very little writing, um, you know, other than a couple of blog articles and things I've written up for trainings and things like that um, regarding IFS. Yeah. It will be very welcome. Yes. And you will be writing on these topics that you have been working all those years, meaning the addictions and eatings and legacies that will be your topic. Yeah, and, and my polarization is, should I make it uh, autobiographical or should I make it technical? <laughs> <laughs> One part of me says technical would be boring. <laughs> yes, absolutely, it can be. Absolutely, or I totally agree with you. Please don't do that. <laughs> yes, <laughs> because, I, I'm... I'm with those parts. I like the personal story. I always feel yeah. a, a deeper connection to that. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Please allow your story to be present in every line. Yes. So there it's you go. <laughs> perhaps, perhaps there's an integration of both. <laughs> oh. It'll be. Yeah. So, yeah. Those would. Uh, I'd be in the areas that I've I've worked in, but um, I have to find a way that it will be interesting. Yeah. And time also to do it. Time. Yeah. So much. Needed. Yeah. Yes. What do you envision uh, as a potential evolution for the model itself? Where, where do you see IFS going as it gets more traction and moves forward? Well, you know, we, we've, they've changed the name now to the Institute. They, did you know that? Yeah, IFS yeah. Institute. And I think it's a fabulous idea because I, I believe that you know, none of us live forever. And if you have an institute, that means it'll be continuing, like some of the other mo models, you know, Gestalt Absolutely. and... And uh, Ackerman Institute, many of them, you know, their founders are not, not with us anymore, but they're still viable. So mm -hmm. I, I'd like to see IFS be a viable... Um, organization. Mm -hmm. Yes, an organization. And um, the more that it, it really is adapted, I, I think it will do a lot to change our thinking and our culture um, um, and can change the planet in a lot of positive ways. And I, I believe that starts with one person at a time. Um, so if each of us is out of the, out there doing work like this and we help um, shift even one or two people, we've made a huge contribution to the planet. And, and I believe IFS has the potential to do that um, if we keep it going. It's inspiring, isn't it? Mm -hmm. It is inspiring. A lot of people could use this kind of therapy. Absolutely. It's, it's not yeah. only a, a model of therapy. It's also very much a movement. The paradigm change in the way people can think of themselves. So it's really, really a huge gift, not only to the clinical field. Yeah, I mean, I see in business and even politics and, and family, just the way we look at life, uh, it's really a powerful way to, to uh, 
experience and observe life. Yeah. Yeah, we have clarity on how to work with polarizations in a world that is very polarized. That's right. I mean, some people knew this, these things before. Um, it's not that this never happened in any kind of way, but I think this is a more uh, focused way that pulls things together um, and it, it can reach more people. Yeah. Wonderful. So, Mary, thank you so much for having us. It was a joy to be here with you and Isha. I hope we can keep meeting and sharing this model, our work, our lives. And you know, uh, in this one, we will have in June our first European conference or symposium on IFS. Maybe you can join us in June 2020. I'm trying to think of a way to squeeze that into my schedule. <laughs> oh, yeah, make it happen. Lisbon in June, it's got to be beautiful. I bet. <laughs> it sounds like a fabulous that you're having it there too yeah we hope so we can meet the whole family and enjoy it really i'm sure you'll get great attendance thank you so thank you so much mary it was fun to have you and to learn from you from your large experience with the model i'm very very grateful Thanks to both of you, Tisha and Annabelle. I uh, appreciate the opportunity to speak a little bit more about my experiences. And um, I wish both of you a lovely uh, day or evening. Yeah. This was an IFS Talks episode, an audio series to deepen connections with the internal family systems model through conversations with lead trainers, authors, practitioners, and users.